This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Stevens, New York Times best-selling and award-winning author, kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And for those of you listening on the podcast, which will be most of you, I am staring at a screen right now that actually has a video recording set up, so we're actually doing video with this. <laughs> we didn't do it last week. We are actually doing it this week. Taylor, where can people find the video? The links will be posted in the show notes, but you can always find these recorded video recorded episodes on my Patreon page. They are not behind the paywall, not behind the paywall. They are free for anybody who has access to my account, which is anybody who has an account. Even if you don't have a Patreon account, you can still view them if you have the actual link. So show notes are good for that. I usually post them in the Facebook group as well. And um, then if you create a Patreon account and follow me, that does not require uh, a pledge, then these would automatically show up in your inbox whenever they go live. Okay. And then, of course, we would encourage you to uh, also support uh, Taylor's work by becoming a patron, but that's a completely separate issue. Um, so in my experience in, in doing these shows where, where we have both video and audio is I think you probably get 60, 65% of the value of the show if you're listening, but the other 35% you get when you're actually seeing, because it's just seeing and hearing at the same time, uh, it, at least for me, there's, uh, it, it embeds itself a lot better in my mind. So I, I just want to say that for me, since I'm primarily a visual learner, I would get maybe 10 or 20% from the podcast and the rest would be from visual. So if you have fellow writers who are not really big on podcast listening, don't even send them the audio, just send them straight to video. <laughs> <laughs> and there we have it. So with that being said, no chit chat this week because... Um, we're, we just generally don't do chit chat when we do the, the video, the hack the craft video episodes. So Taylor, um, you're up and I, I see your smiling face with the logo of the Taylor Stevens show here. So, uh, take it away. Okay. So what we're going to do today is primarily focus on the issue of flashbacks. We've had some gaps and interruptions since I answered all of the flashback questions. So, we're proceeding as if you're going to remember everything we already talked about, and that can be a little frustrating, so I'm sorry for that in advance, but it's the only way to keep this moving forward. Um, I have some notes that I've written, and I'm going to read them just as I've written them for our um, audio listeners, and our video watchers or just can read along with or however you want to do it. And it's going to explain where we go from here. So, okay. So, this is material that was sent in by author MZ Lowe. And the genre is paranormal cozy mystery. 
And the setup for this sequence is this segment is leading up to the story climax, which occurs in the next chapter. Becca is the main character point of view. Becca and Patty have just rushed to a parking lot where Tom and Fred are fighting over Patty's love and attention. And Tom and Fred are animal human shifters. So, so stopping the fight is unrealistic for either woman. And these are not the characters' real names. <laughs> they have been changed for easy reading because I am notorious for butchering pronunciations. And the goal of this little hands-on thing here is, this is from the author's own words, instead of focusing on the fight for the tension of this scene, I wanted to focus on Becca's feeling of helplessness to stop the fight. I decided to bring bits of flashback to heighten her tension by triggering a t traumatic time in Becca's life when she also felt helpless. Because this is a cozy, I need to treat the current and past violence with a lighter touch, but also evoke tension. So here are my initial thoughts uh, before we even get into the hands-on stuff. When working with flashbacks, it is critical to anchor the reader so that there is no misunderstanding about when we're in flashback and when we're not. And this is even more critical when the flashback weaves between past and present. And this then becomes exponentially more critical when either the flashback or real-time sequence, or both, involve action or high emotion. And that's because the brain has a tendency to speed up during moments of conflict and tension. And when the brain speeds up, reading comprehension drops. So flashback sequences that are not vividly clear on when we're entering or exiting the flashback will leave the reader free-floating, unanchored from time, space, or place. And as a result, what could have been a very powerful and engaging sequence becomes blur. And so the reader knows something happened. They get the general gist of it, but they're a little lost on the exact details some of them might do a double take and go back and give it another read, but most won't because the details really don't matter as much as finding out what happens next. And so what ends up happening is your most powerful moments become something sort of skippable. And I mention all of this because it took me several reads on this particular sequence to figure out what was past and what was present within this flashback. And actually, to be honest, I'm not actually sure there is an actual true flashback at all. And I don't know if I've gotten any of this right. So just to be really clear, I didn't run into that problem on my initial read. On that, The first time I was reading this, I was reading for content, just like most readers would. And on that first read, the sequence, it felt a little mushy, a little blurry, but not in a way that stopped me from understanding what was happening. I absolutely got the connection between past and present before versus the now. I understood how they connected. I did feel the emotion. And I just figured a few line edits, a few details moved around, and we'd be good to go. And it wasn't until I actually went hands-on and tried making the fixes that I realized I had no earthly clue what was actually happening and no way to know for sure just using what was on the page for context if I was even guessing it right. And so this is a really good example of what flow issues look like. So when a story flows, one detail bleeds into the next, which bleeds into the next, which bleeds into the next. And it just drags the eye across the page smoothly, seemingly. And it provides the reader with everything she or he needs to know to make sense of what's happening right there. And the flow issues arise when some of those details fail to transfer from the author's head to the page. And so because this details that do already exist, it's not like they haven't been thought of. 
Uh, it's not like a plot hole or something that's unrealistic or just things that somebody didn't really think all the way through. Flow, flow things, they're there. They exist. They're just not on the page. And because in this case, the story is written as if they also exist on the page, there's a, usually, and in this case, there is enough detail surrounding those gaps that the, the author doesn't always see that there's something missing. And readers maybe don't even catch it either. They, at least not specifically, it just feels a little gritty. And so in this particular instance, there are two main elements that are driving the flow issues. The first has to do with tenses and the second with the sparseness of the language, which usually uh, clean, very sparse writing is a goal. You want to eliminate as many unnecessary words as possible. But in this situation, that elimination of words has gone full circle where the lack of words has created its own set of problems by removing any context that could be used to definitely understand where the character is in time, space, and place. And there are a few other small issues as well, but we can address all of that as part of a line edit. So the first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna read this scene segment from the beginning to figure out where the flashback begins and ends. And once we've isolated the flashback, then we're just gonna focus on that part. So this first isn't even a pass through, it's just to read it and figure it out and to remind ourselves of what we're actually looking at. So this segment begins mid-scene with Patty and Becca just having arrived at the parking lot where Tom and Fred are fighting. Patty yelled, stop it, you bloody bastards. That caught their attention. Tom's nose was bleeding and Fred sported a black eye, but they refused to let go of each other's throats. They panted hard and growled, their animals pushing to the fore. Patty strode toward the men. I'm not some freaking prize at a jousting match. Becca didn't trust the frail gaze consuming those two. They weren't hearing Patty through their bloodlust, so she tugged the woman closer to her side and shuffled backwards. Good thing, too. Tom kicked free and rolled into a crouch. In a blink, both men shifted to their animals. Werewolf versus Snow Leopard wasn't going to end well for anyone. Foolish to step into the middle of those razor-sharp claws and teeth. She preferred not to get shredded. Again. With a firm grip on Patty, Becca looked around for help. Still no alpha or police, typical, always alone. A blood-curling snar snarl drew Becca's attention back to the men. Fred's wolf lacked the grace and speed, but he knew how to fight with a terrifying viciousness. Becca's lungs burned, closing off her windpipe. Not now, please not now. And this is where the flashback begins. But her mind succumbed to the horrid memories, trapped in a cage, watching men forced to fight, death matches, and desert warlords betting on winners. Tears pricked her eyes. Fists clenched, metal bars rattling in her ears. She had failed another dead. Stop it, stupid. Focus. Instead, her heart bruised her ribs with its beating. She hated this weakness, but the nightmare didn't care. Smells of sweat, smells of sweat and blood turned her stomach. She pinched her thigh, noticed the details. She squeezed her eyes shut and opened them, freezing temperature against her skin, mountains behind the buildings, building no weight of a camera around her neck. Right, Alaska, no longer a photojournalist kidnapped, praying for rescue. Pixel by pixel, the past released its images and breaths became easier. And that's where the flashback ends. So that's where we're going to end and we're going to take a look at what happens next. So this first pass through it, it's just to look at and focus on the structure. And I'm just going to give you my thoughts as we go through it 
just for structure. No line editing, no other content, just on why I'm lost as to whether we're actually in a flashback or not. So it starts, Becca's lungs burned, closing off her windpipe. Please, not now, please, not now. But her mind succumbed to the horrid memories. And that's where we get my first comment. Her mind succumbed indicates heading into a flashback. But memory says no. And so from the very first, I am confused. Is this a memory or is it a flashback? A memory is remembering. And you can have emotional responses to memories. But a flashback is reliving. To make this a flashback, we would need to put her body back into the past. But I'm not even sure we're in a flashback because, and I'll get to the because in just a second. I want to finish this, um, the horrid memories. Trapped in a cage, watching men forced to fight death matches, and desert warlords betting on winners. Tears pricked her eyes. Fists clenched, metal bars rattling in her ears. She had failed another dead. So tears pricked her eyes is present tense. Fists clenched is also present tense. So this must be happening in the moment. We're not flashing back to the past. She's just feeling emotion in response to the memory. But wait, no, because fists clenched, metal bars rattling in her ears are together as part of a continuing thought. And they are both in present tense. There are no metal bars in this parking lot. So we must be in a flashback except this clenched metal bars rattling in her ears together as part of a continuing thought could mean that her fists are clenching themselves, which is what is usually meant by fist clenched, or that she's clenching the bars or shaking the bars and making them rattle. So it could go either way. Is this fist clenched in the moment in relation to metal bars rattling, the memory of metal bars rattling in her ears? Or is this whole thing taking place in the past? And when it said, is this saying that tears pricked her eyes and her fists clenched right now because she could still hear the metal bars? Or is it saying that the tears pricked her eyes right now and back then she clenched the bars and heard the metal battling? And then it moves into... She had failed another dead, and that's definitely speaking of the past, but it doesn't help me know if we're reliving the past because of everything that had come up before it. And this would possibly be less confusing for, to anyone who has read the entire story leading to this point, but we fight for clarity at all stages, and you never know if someone has set the book down for a couple of weeks, come back to it here, picks it up, and just gets lost because they don't automatically remember everything that came before it. So I, at this point, we're halfway through this very small scene, and I don't know where we are. The next line is, stop it, stupid, focus. Instead, her heart bruised her ribs with its beating. She hated this weakness, but the nightmare didn't care. So now she's talking to herself. So this entire paragraph is happening in real time. But then the next phrase, smells of sweat and blood turned her stomach. She pinched her thigh, noticed the details. She squeezed her eyes shut and opened them, freezing temperature against her skin, mountains behind the building, and no weight of a camera around her neck. Right, Alaska. No longer a photojournalist kidnapped praying for rescue. So when we get smells of sweat and blood turned her stomach, I don't know if this is a reaction to the past, like if she's back in the past again, 
or if this is a reaction to something that's happening in the present, because there's no nothing in this scene at all. Maybe there was in the portion leading up to it, but nothing here for me to know how close these women are to the men who are fighting. So can she smell sweat and blood from where she's standing? And this being a paranormal, it's possible that she's one of the characters that has ability to smell from very long distances, as I assume a wolf or a snow leopard would. But that context isn't here, so I don't know. And I know that, like, for humans, you can't smell sweat from more than but a foot or two away unless the person you're smelling is just absolutely rank. But even then, if you're observing a fight from 10 or 15 feet away, you're not going to be able to smell the blood or the sweat. So I don't know. Is this supposed to be the smell of sweat and blood turned her stomach now? Or is it a like a one sentence flashback to then? And from that point forward, we are solidly in the present. So she pinched her thigh would seem to indicate that the smell of sweat and blood turned her stomach was a single line return to flashback. But generally, single-line flashbacks aren't a thing, so I'm really not sure where this connects. Um, and so when I go back into this to try and create, recreate it so that we have a solid sense and anchoring of time and space of going in to the flashback and coming out, I'm going to have to make a lot of guesses. And I'm going to treat the smell of sweat and blood as if it's the past and not the present, because I don't know. But here's the thing. If the smell of sweat and blood turning her stomach is the present, that should be the trigger that causes her to begin to shut down and go into this flashback. Right now, all that we've seen is she sees the men fighting. She sees the the them roll into their shapeshift into their animal forms and begin attacking each other. And that is a visual cue that should, could be enough to trigger this awful, awful recreation of this traumatic event. But the smell itself would be much more powerful and far more likely to do that. And the smell in conjunction with the fighting would be together something that happens, that triggers this. So if the smell of blood and sweat is in the present, it belongs before the windpipe starts to shut down. It belongs as part of the fight, the things she's seeing in the fight, as to complete the whole package of the trigger because like belongs with like. And so that would go up front. And so since it's so far down here, I can only assume that it's part of the past. And so I'm going to integrate it as being part of the past, but I could be wrong. So I'm doing a lot of guessing here and I can't say that I'm necessarily right. And so here's, we go into our second pass on this flashback. This is our first rewrite. All I'm gonna do here is try and move elements around so that we can get like with like and hopefully create an anchor so that we know when we're moving into the flashback and anchor us out again, moving out. I'm not gonna deal with any line edits or anything else. I'm just shuffling information. The changes I'm making are small to try and help 
with the anchoring. So it says, Becca's lungs burned, closing off her windpipe. Not now, please not now. But her mind succumbed to the horrid memories, trapped in a cage, watching men forced to fight death matches and desert warlords betting on winners. Tears pricked her eyes, fists clenched, metal bars rattling in her ears. She had failed another debt. And here's how I rewrote that to try and accommodate and integrate all the information. Becca's lungs burned, closing off her windpipes. Not now. Please not now. But her mind succumbed to the horrid memories. She was trapped again. So with that, she was trapped again. I basically took control of her body and planted it firmly in time, space, and place. We know this is her, and it is the before. And I use the again to emphasize the before, and I'm going to repeat with again a few more times for cadence. And normally we want to avoid using the same word over and over again, but that is speaking to when we use a word without when there are suitable replacements for it. Sometimes you want you do it deliberately because it creates a sort of um, poetic emphasis. And that's what I'm doing here with it. And you'll see what I mean in a second. So she was trapped again, helpless again, back in the cage, metal bars rattling her ears, stench turning her chum- stomach, watching men forced into death matches, bleed for desert warriors betting on winners. So I added this phrase, helpless again, because in the author's notes, she said that she wanted to emphasize this scene as being part of this sense of helplessness. That's where this tension is coming from. But in the original, there's no mention of the helplessness. And so here, using it as part of repetition, it reinforces what it is that is the emotion that she's feeling, the sense of being trapped, the sense of being helpless. So now that's all like with like in one paragraph, maybe not exactly clean, but at least the information's all in one place. So watching men forced into death matches bleed for desert warriors betting on winners. Tears pricked her eyes, her fists clenched another dead. She had failed again. So the tears pricking her eyes, her fists clenching, it's a little iffy. Are we in or out? But because all the other uh, information bracketing it, the before and the after, is clear that it's past, we can get away with that. We can get away with the idea that that might actually be happening in the present, and it's not pulling us out of the flashback. And then to securely anchor us that the flashback is over. We are moving out and back into real time. I added this line that says, no, this wasn't that. This couldn't be that. So tears pricked her eyes, her fists clenched, another dead. She had failed again. No, this wasn't that. This couldn't be that. So that's pulling us out, right? And now she talks to herself again. Stop it, stupid. Focus. Instead, her heart bruised her ribs with its beating. She hated this weakness, but the nightmare didn't care. So now the next paragraph no longer opens with smells of sweat and blood turning her stomach. We are immediately back in the present. She pinched her thigh. 
forced herself to notice her surroundings. She squeezed her eyes shut and opened them, freezing temperature against her skin, mountains behind the building, and no weight of a camera around her neck. Right, Alaska. No longer a photojournalist kidnapped, praying for rescue. Pixel by pixel, the past released its image. Images and breaths became easier. So assuming I've guessed intent correctly, and that's a risky assumption because I still really don't know, here's what an initial write-back, initial rewrite for that flashback structure might look like. Becca's lungs burned, closing off her windpipe. Not now, please not now. But her mind succumbed to the horrid memories. She was trapped again, helpless again, back in the cage, metal bars rattling in her ears, stench turning her, chummet, st stench turning her stomach, watching men forced into death matches bleed for desert warlords betting on winners. Tears pricked her eyes, her fists clenched, another dead. She had failed again. No, this wasn't that. This couldn't be that. Stop it, stupid. Focus. Instead, her heart bruised her ribs with its beating. She hated this weakness, but the nightmare didn't care. She pinched her thigh, forced herself to notice her surroundings. She squeezed her eyes shut and opened them, freezing temperature against her skin, mountains behind the building, and no weight of a camera around her neck. Right, Alaska. No longer a photojournalist kidnapped, praying for rescue. Pixel by pixel, the past released its images and breaths became easier. So that's what the initial rewrite would look like. Now, I, I want to point out one small thing is I made a change to the line that said she had failed another dead. And I switched those two elements, another dead, she had failed. And then I added again to complete that sequence of cadence of repetition. And the reason I switched she had failed another dead so that another dead came first is because she everything is cause and effect, right? So we want to know the cause before the effect. So the cause is another dead. She had failed was her reaction to seeing or knowing another was dead. So it's a small change, but it has to do with flow. One detail bleeds into the next, bleeds into the next, and it drags the eye across the page. Cause, effect. All right. So now we're going to look at this. Uh, for a third pass. And the third pass is going to give us some line edits. And before we go into this, there's one particular point that's going to come up several times. And I just feel like it's better to address it here than in line edit notes or comments. And this is the issue of, of spoken inner dialogue. So in this scene, we have a couple of instances where the character is essentially talking to herself. It's not spoken out loud, but it is spoken out loud inside her head, right? So spoken inner dialogue is what happens when essentially characters talk to themselves. I don't know if that's an official term. It's just what I'm calling it. And it's it's the equivalent of an inner voice. It's more direct. It's more pointed. Uh, it's a more pointed version of inner dialogue because the character is actually articulating and it's not narrative, right? So in this particular segment, not now, please not now, that's an example of spoken inner dialogue. And Unless you're writing so close up inside your character's head that inner dialogue is essentially a form of spoken inner dialogue, you're going to need to visually differentiate one from another. So the way I write, for example, I get so close up inside my character's heads that we are basically getting sort of a running inner dialogue from Monroe or Jack or Jill as the story goes on. So when they stop and they say something like, oh, no, that's stupid, they're not 
talking to themselves any more directly than any of the other inner dialogue going on. So it's not really necessary for me to italicize or highlight out that spoken inner dialogue. But if you're not writing that up close inside the character's head, which in this this story, it's not, you need to differentiate one from the other. And the principle behind this is the same one that has us using quotation marks for to indicate spoken dialogue, right? We don't technically need quotation marks to tell us when someone's speaking. It's totally possible to infer that from the context. We don't need them. And in fact, there are some authors who choose not to use them as sort of a, you know, I'm so avant-garde, I'm going to write my books differently, right? So it is the, the whole point, the purpose of punctuation marks, quotation marks, any of that is to eliminate confusion. And it's to eliminate those gritty microsecond pauses of trying to figure out what the intent is, where one thought begins and another ends. And we use visual cues for that. And in this case, we need visual cues for spoken inner dialogue in that same way. And the easiest way to accomplish that is to italicize them, to italicize the spoken inner dialogue. And it can also be helpful to give that spoken inner dialogue its own line, the same way you would when you have two characters speaking and every time a new character begins speaking, we move on. You don't have multiple characters speaking in the same paragraph without some indication. Like It's rare. It can happen, but it's unusual. Normally, when a new character speaks, you give them a new line. And you tr- you can treat spoken inner dialogue that same way where you give it its own line and it sets it apart from everything else that's happening and then you go one step further and you italicize it um but the difference is unlike quotation marks which are sort of a universally accepted standard for english writing italics extra lines those are stylistic choices so you get to decide how you want to do it but the point is you need to well be consistent in it but also separate it so that the reader doesn't have to do that microsecond pause hitch of, wait, what's happening now? Oh, I get it and move on, right? It's grit, grit elimination. So here we go, moving into our third pass of this little flashback sequence. I'm incorporating the changes that I already put in from the previous structural edit, and I'm just putting right them in there, and then I'm going to line it at those two. So my first comment is with this line, Becca's lungs burned, closing off her windpipe. And I get the imagery and the intent. And this phrasing works if you don't care about accuracy. But this is the type of thing that readers who do care about accuracy are going to look at and go, whatever. And that's because literally, biologically speaking, it is impossible for burning lungs to close off a windpipe. If anything, it works the other way around. The windpipe shuts, the lungs begin to burn. So I changed this too, and I'm not saying the way I change it is the right way. We don't want everybody's writing sounding exactly like mine, but I do what I do. Becca's lungs seized and she struggled for air. Not now, she begged. Please, not now. So I added that line she begged. It's a technically a uh, dialogue tag. Um, I've italicized the not now and the please not now and added she begged in between. And I did that because it felt like something was needed here. Some beat, some clarification to emphasize the moment. 
And spoken inner dialogue is one of the few places where I'm actually comfortable adding an attribution tag other than said. And this seemed to work. So that's what I went for. Not saying it's right, just saying it's what I did. The next phrase said, but her mind succumbed to the horrid memories. And I deleted everything after succumbed, but her mind succumbed. And I did this for a couple reasons. Horrid in this sentence is an example of the kind of telling that we didn't address in the tell versus show of flashback questions. So as a general rule, you want to avoid telling a reader what the meaning of something is. Like you don't want to say, and then she told a funny joke. Okay, we already know that by implication, jokes are funny. So the only reason to mention something about the joke is if it's not funny. Lame, okay? Um, and I thought that was pretty stupid. Well, we don't have to tell the reader something was stupid. It, the, the point is to do, to allow the imagery and the description and everything you've built into it to, to speak that for you. So I took out horrid because it actually dulls the impact of allowing the reader to feel their own horror. You've stolen that from them by telling them what it should be. And her mind, so, so her mind succumbed to the memories is going to be far stronger than her mind succumbed to the horrid memories. But that said, memories itself is kind of redundant here because it's all automatically implied by the description that's following. So, but her mind succumbed is even a stronger way to say it. Then comes next. She was trapped again, helpless again, back in the cage, metal bars rattling in her ears. So I felt that this was an instance where the narrative went too sparse, where even if we didn't need something here to transfer us into a flashback, which is what she was trapped again, I was basically taking control of her body and anchoring it into time and space. Even if we weren't entering into a flashback, this would have needed something to guide us into what we were about to, to anchor us into what we were about to experience next. So even if it wasn't this phrase, because we're not entering into a flashback, if under those circumstances, we would still need something to just ease us into what's happening next. The next thing um, I did was where she was back in the cage, metal bars rattling in her ears. I deleted out the in her ears because this is an example of redundancy. Um, metal bars rattling, for the most part, unless we're feeling that rattle through vibration, our ears are the automatic way that we interpret sound. So if we're interpreting this by sound, we do not need to say by what part of the body we're interpreting it. The only way you would need something to indicate how we knew those metal bars were rattling is if it wasn't the ears. The metal bars rattled in her face. A vibration of the metal bars flowed from her fingertips. However, whatever the situation, if it's not the ears, then we need to know. Otherwise, you don't need to say anything. It's redundant, right? So 
The next phrase is stench turning her chump. Her <laughs> One of these days, I am going to pronounce that correctly. Stench turning her stomach, watching men forced to fight to the death. So I changed out watching men forced death matches to watching men forced to fight to the death. And the reason I did this is because the emotional weight of being forced to fight to the death is far heavier than men being forced into death matches. That is a personal preference. But because this is very small amount of words that we're working with, we're aiming for maximum emotional impact without utilizing graphic violence, gore, any of the things that would normally maybe become tools for creating that sense of horror, right? So we have to choose what words we use to describe something for maximum impact since we don't have a lot of options here. So watching men forced to fight to the death. And then this gets a little wordy. I'm not exactly happy with how it turned out, but I basically reworded some of what other already existed too. Their blood and pain and fear used as entertainment by desert warlords betting on winners and losers. So the reason I went with blood and pain and fear as entertainment is because that is a far more um, emotionally triggering concept than sweat and blood turning her stomach. And I, I wanted to emphasize the use of of death as entertainment, because that's the whole point of this um, this little segment here. It's not the betting on who's winning per se. It's the fact that this is blood sport for entertainment. I felt that that was key. Author might totally disagree. Might feel there's too many words in there. The paragraph is clunky, which it is. Um, I just didn't have time to to keep working on it. Uh, but I'm putting those elements in there to show what I would be getting at, where, where my own direction would be if this was mine, and then I would keep working on it to, to clean it up more. So the next phrase is, tears pricked her eyes, her fists clenched. And here I highlighted out tears pricked, and I deleted pricked and changed it to filled because I don't think it's technically physically possible for tears to prick eyes. I, I, I feel, I think, I believe, I feel what the author was going for with that word pricked. Um, but I feel like it was a, you know how sometimes you think you're going one direction, but you use the wrong word for it because it's somewhere in between and that's just where your brain goes. It must be that. So maybe a, a, a cross between filling and ticking or I don't know, but pricked is the wrong word here. So I just deleted it out because prick is a poke and tears can't do that. So then we have another dead. She had failed again. And then that line, no, this wasn't that. This couldn't be that, which I already talked about. And then next comes this phrase, stop it, stupid focus. Instead, her heart bruised her ribs with its beating. She hated this weakness, but the nightmares didn't care. So I deleted that whole thing. Thing. And the reason was, first is, I couldn't tell if the intent, intent here was for her to call herself stupid. And that kind of, um, it, 
I don't know. To me, in this type of environment, it just seemed a little light, maybe, to call yourself stupid when you're in the middle of this traumatic, um, traumatic moment. And then, so the other thing is she says, stop it, stupid. And I just want to point out here that stop it is the correct way to say it if you're just telling somebody to stop something. But the it is really kind of redundant. So stop is a stronger way of saying it. So if you said stop, stupid, or whatever, like if you're talking to yourself, stop it, stupid, yeah, that kind of makes it easier to read. But for the most part, especially if she's not calling herself stupid and it's supposed to be stop it, stupid, focus, then you would not need the it. It's redundant. Uh, it's always going to be stronger. It is a filler word, and it's your material is always going to read stronger if you can find figure out what it is supposed to be saying, like stop being ridiculous, which is not correct here, but that's just an example. Stop being ridiculous, stupid, focus. Then you want to replace whenever possible that's not going to ruin the cadence or become too wordy. Replace that it with whatever the thing is. You've automatically there increased the power of whatever it is you're writing. And so I deleted all of this because my personal take is that this entire segment is going to read stronger by skipping that part of the spoken inner dialogue and moving directly to action. But this is my story, isn't my story, and I don't have full context. So that's just my opinion. And you're absolutely welcome to ignore it. So I replaced when when it said, stop it, stupid focus. Instead, her heart bruised her ribs with its beating. She hated this weakness, but the nightmare didn't care. It's a lot of words replaced with stop, think, focus. So she's talking to herself there, clearly uh, spoken inner dialogue, but it just gets to the point and moves us right into um, what happens next without going on about the the nightmare and whatever. We know it's a nightmare, right? So that, that's where my brain was at with that. And so I deleted out a couple things in this next sentence, next paragraph. She's, it says, she pinched her thigh, forced herself to take in the surrounding details. I deleted out the pinched her thigh because I feel like, and maybe it's just me, and maybe I'm projecting myself too much onto this character, but I don't know that that's something that happens outside of movies. Like we generally don't need to pinch ourselves to know when we're reliving something traumatic. Like we we're grounded enough to know. And I just felt like it kind of maybe felt a little <clears throat> childish and maybe de-emphasized the emotional weight, personal opinion. I could be completely wrong, but I felt that just forcing the focus, the attention of this paragraph on what was happening instead of spending a lot of time with the extra actions would make it stronger. So instead of she pinched her thigh, forced herself to take in the surroundings, I just said she forced herself to take in the surrounding details. The next line was she squeezed her eyes shut and opened them. And that's a really difficult phrase to articulate in any way that doesn't sound awkward. Like I get 
the visual that we're going for there, that sort of really heavy blinking of trying to bring yourself into the moment. But because it's one of those really awkward phrases, that imagery doesn't naturally translate into a mental movie. Like you you have to really work to get that image. And so just by implication, it becomes grit. And it's not necessary for creating the emotional weight that this uh, paragraph is trying to carry. So I just took it out. And so instead, it would say she forced herself to take in the surrounding details. Freezing temperature, right? We just eliminate the squeezing the eyes shut and open and we move right into those details. The next thing I did was delete the phrase against her skin, freezing temperature against her skin. And the reason here is the same for which we removed uh, in her ears earlier. Skin is how we uh, get that tactile sense. Skin, touch. Uh, So where else, how else would you know that the temperature was freezing? What other sense would give that to you with the same immediate understanding as your skin. If you're using some other sense or some other way of knowing, then you articulate it. But if you're using the most obvious, there's no need to. So freezing temperature against her skin becomes freezing temperatures or freezing temperature. The mountains behind the building. And then I added this phrase and changed it slightly where it did say, Um, and no weight of a camera around her neck. And I changed it to the weightlessness of having no camera around her neck. But one might, not to say what, the the original is probably just as fine. My solution wasn't any better. I just got heavy-handed with the line it is. Right, Alaska. And then the original said, no longer a photojournalist, kidnapped praying for rescue. And I edited it slightly to say she was no longer a kidnapped photojournalist praying for rescue because like belongs with like and she was not she was not kidnapped praying for rescue she was a kidnapped photojournalist praying for rescue um i don't know if that's a grammatical thing or not i just know that that's where my brain goes no the like is not with the like <laughs> and it put it back the other way But the kidnap praying for rescue could have been a cadence thing. The intent could have been cadence, in which case a comma after kidnapped would have solved it just as well. The next thing I changed was where it says pixel by pixel, the past released its images. And I totally get the intent here is that it's trying to say bit by bit the past let go, right? But since writing is so much a process of trying to find the precise word and precision relies on accuracy, I made this change because pixels are by definition digital imagery. And what's happening inside her head is not digital images. It is the mind at work. So I changed pixel by pixel to memory by memory. And the past released its hold instead of the past released its images. So memory by memory, 
the past released its hold. And then I changed and breaths became easier too. And breathing became easier because that is a smoother, uh, more grammatical way, I think, to say it. So if we were to accept all of these changes, this is how that small little flashback would now read. Becca's lungs seized and she struggled for air. Not now, she begged. Please not now. But her mind succumbed. She was trapped again, helpless again, back in the cage, metal bars rattling, stench turning her stomach, <laughs> stench turning her stomach, watching men forced to fight to the death, their blood and pain and fear used as in- entertainment by desert warlords betting on winners and losers. Tears filled her eyes. Her fists clenched. Another dead. She had failed again. No, this wasn't that. This couldn't be that. Stop. Think. Focus. She forced herself to take in the freezing temperature, the mountains behind the building, the weightlessness of having no camera around her neck. Right. Alaska. She was no longer a kidnapped photojournalist praying for rescue. Memory by memory, the past released its hold and breathing became easier. And that is all I've got. And that was fantastic. As always, when we do these Hack the Craft episodes, although we have run long, I, I would normally offer some comment, but um, this is two episodes in a, in, a, in a row that went pretty long. So I think we're just going to wrap it up. What are we going to do next week, Taylor? I still have to finish the last part of the line edits on this. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we will be back again with more video next week. So uh, thank you all for listening, and uh, thank you especially to those of you who have been watching and following along on video. Uh, We appreciate uh, both of you, and we will be back in your ear and on your screen again next Tuesday. Yes, we will, and I just want to emphasize one small point, and that is we always get so much more helpful and useful material when we are working off actual uh, examples that come with questions, very specific questions. And none of these episodes that we've done over the last four weeks now, I think, um, would have even come about or been possible if MZ hadn't been brave enough to submit this material, to allow it to be critiqued, if she hadn't taken the time to ask very thoughtful, just amazing questions based on the material she was working on. So if you enjoyed this and you would like more of this, if maybe you would like some directly related to what you're working on, please be brave and send in a little bit for us to work with or even just the questions to go with it. Um, It matters. It makes a difference. It makes this show so much better. And so I'm just putting it out there that we always need more. And the more we get, the better you receive. (laughs) So with that said, we will see you next week.